I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 20th, 2014. Coming up, we'll talk with two Colorado high school seniors, Hope Weinstein from Fairview High and Michael Brady from Cherry Creek High. They were finalists in the massively competitive Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. And we'll learn about a robotic spacecraft that's closing in on its mission to visit a comet. But first, let's check the science calendar. We begin on this date in 1875 with the establishment of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. It now has 56 member states and is responsible for maintaining global standards of measurement, including the Système International, or SI units, more commonly known as the metric system, which is fundamental to all of science. And on this day in 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope sent back its first image of stars in the Carina Cluster, about 1,300 light-years away. Though clearer than a ground-based telescope, Hubble's early images weren't as crisp as scientists had hoped due to a problem with the mirror inside the telescope, but that was fixed during a shuttle mission in 1993. Uh, and jumping ahead to the present, Café Scientifique, the group of science enthusiasts and experts who meet informally over beers, gathers this week to learn about the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission. The presenter will be Joel Parker of the Southwest Research Institute, who, uh, hmm, Joel Parker. Susan, why is that name so familiar? Uh, well, Ted, maybe that's because it's the same Joel Parker who works right here with us at How on Earth? Oh, that Joel Parker, of course. Joel is one of the scientists working on Rosetta, and, uh, oh, hey, here he is now. Hi, Ted. Hi, Susan. Hi there. Hi, Joel. So, so Joel, you're presenting at Cafe Sci tomorrow night? That's right. I'll be talking about the Rosetta mission, as you said which is going to visit a comet later this year. Uh, the event is going to be at Brooklands in Denver near the Pepsi Center. It starts at 6.30 and is open to the public. So listeners can learn more at cafecicolorado.org. Thanks, Joel. And Joel will stick around to talk more about Rosetta later in the show. But first, we'll meet a couple of Colorado high school students who've taken science projects to the next level. Stay tuned. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran, and that's a test. The end of the school year is just around the corner for high school students, so let's celebrate the achievements and passion of many of them in Colorado who've excelled in science, technology, math, and engineering, known by the acronym STEM. Two of them from the Denver Boulder area were finalists at a renowned global competition that was held in Los Angeles last week. It's the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. And the fair is a program of Sci Society for Science and the Public, which publishes the magazine Science News and Science News for Students. Each year, roughly 7 million high school students around the globe develop original research projects and then present their work at local and national science competitions. Many of you parents out there know this well. 
The students dream of making it all the way to the Intel competition, but only about 1,800 of them, those who first won local, regional, state, and even national competitions, are invited to participate in the week-long STEM extravaganza. Two of these super achievers are on the phone to share their experiences and projects with us. One is Hope Weinstein, a senior at Fairview High in Boulder. The other is Michael Brady, a senior at Cherry Creek High in Greenwood Village near Littleton. We'll let them talk about the research in a little bit, but first, welcome to the show, Hope and Michael. Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad you're both here with us. I'd try to cajole you into the studio, but I know you have, you know, classes to take and probably still tests to take, right? So first I wanted to ask you both what it was like for you. I mean, it seems that this huge Intel International Science and Engineering Fair is this mecca for brainiacs of sorts. Um, first, Michael, what, what was it like for you? I mean, is this a dream come true? Um, yeah, it was quite an experience. Um, I'd only been in the fair one year prior, but coming to it this year was just incredible. It was such a huge production with so many people, and it was just really well orchestrated, and so ended up being quite a life experience, I thought. That's great. And Hope, what about for you? What stands out? Yeah, I never thought my project would get to the international level, and it was just so cool seeing everyone else's projects from all over the world and connecting with all these different people that I would never have the chance to meet if I didn't come to the fair. And, and does it feel hope to you now, like you have this community of budding scientists? Yeah, friends? I think I've met a lot of people that I'm going to continue to connect with um, internationally. Oh, that's great. So bring us into your world of research. I'm curious for both of you, like what was the problem you were trying to solve or the driving scientific question? How about Hope, you first? So my project focus on, focuses on alternative forms of water filtration. Currently, the main problem in water filtration systems is that we produce a bunch of disinfection byproducts, which are chemicals that are more dangerous than um, what we were trying to remove initially from the water. Things you don't and want so to drink. Have to find Right, yeah. So we don't want to have these in our water, and our current filtration systems are producing these disinfection byproducts. And so what my research does is I use a novel um, form of water filtration called membrane filtration. And what I, and these are man-made mem membranes. They're not biological membranes. And what I did was I embedded them with metallic nanoparticles inside of them as a more effective filter. And so the metallic nanoparticles serve as a chemically reactive barrier towards the contaminants in the water, while the membranes serve as a physically reactive barrier to the contaminants in the water. Wow, and it sounds super advanced. And when you're talking nanoparticles, you're talking much, 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 much thinner, smaller than the human hair, right? Yes, I'm talking about particles that are so small that you actually change the surface area to volume ratio of the particles which allows it to have really unique properties that actually can degrade a wide range of contaminants, unlike what bulk um, metals can do. And with these nanoparticles, I mean, we've many of us have read that some of the nanoparticles are actually a public health problem in water that we drink. Right. So, so those would be things like silver nanoparticles that are found in textile industries. What I'm doing is I'm actually embedding metallic nanoparticles into membranes. So these nanoparticles can't get out into the water. They're just serving as a chemically reactive barrier to the contaminants um, inside of the membrane. So it's a super, super fine filter? Yes. 
Cool. And I'll ask you about some of the applications. But first, I want to jump to you, Michael Brady. What was the driving question you were addressing with your research? Um, So my project is a microbial fuel cell. So what I was looking at was trying to find a solution to uh, electricity um, shortages or people not having electricity in third third world countries. So I took a device that uses actually soil and water and the bacteria inside of that and it produces electricity using the biological mechanisms that those go through. And so my goal was to create something that was really efficient and very inexpensive, something that could power small electronics and then be able to charge things like small electronics or be able to power lighting in homes that don't have access to any other form of electricity. Well, so you're taking microbes and feeding them what, essentially, to produce the electricity? Um, the microbes actually just come from a stream and anything organic matter in the stream or the soil that they come from is what they break down. They just go through that process naturally. And then instead of them using the uh, chemical energy they're creating and um, the electrons that they uh, create in this process, my uh, apparatus pretty much strips the electrons off of these microbes and uses them to create power. Sounds like a renewable resource. Yes, it yeah. is. That's exactly what I was going for. About how much electricity would it generate to make it practical? You say you this is ideally for portable devices or distributed, you know, sort of off the grid places in developing countries or villages here. Yes, um, they don't make a lot of power. That's mm. why you wouldn't see them here in the U.S. most likely. But um, they make uh, enough power to charge batteries, which could then charge small electronics. Uh, the power is really small. It's much less than one watt of energy. And if you're familiar with normal light bulb uh, usage rates, that's very low. But when charging small electronics, things uh, that don't use very much power, and over a long time, this kind of battery can build up a great charge. So it's great for that use. And also compared to something like solar, this is so much less expensive, and it can run all day, all the time. So did you get the venture capitalists chasing you down? Actually, this was a pretty hot area a while back, but didn't seem to quite make it to commercialization. How about in, in your case? Is it, did you get it tested, at least on a, on a small scale? Um, yes. In my project, I was doing testing, trying to um, scale it up, actually, for my project last year. But I never got further into looking to make it into a product and uh, get it further than the prototype I had for the science fair. Partly because you have that thing called school getting in the way? <laughs> yep, that does tend to get in the way. So I'm curious, I mean, a lot of things, but for both of you, did much of what you learned in school play into this, or is this so separate from your coursework and your classwork? How about you, Hope Weinstein? Um, I think that initially what I took from this and applied to my project was most of the chemistry that I learned in school. 
but I had to learn a ton of new um, science and things that I was not exposed to previously, such as um, science involving nanotechnology and membrane filtration and just a whole other field that I wasn't exposed to, which was a really cool thing that I got to do as a part of my research that I would not be have the chance to do if I was just keeping my projects in school. Right. And you were saying you worked at um, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology here in Boulder, right? Yes, I do. I work in that's... one of their nanotechnology labs under the Water Project at NIST. Oh, that's impressive. And how about you, mm-hmm. Michael? Is this totally divorced from your school work, or did some of that fuel, so to speak, <laughs> your research? Um, yeah, it's quite a bit different from anything we're really learning in school, because um, I think a lot of projects go so in-depth into the subjects they're in. And so this project does have the biological aspect in it, so that's um, great to have from school, and that helps a lot learning about the bacteria. But then all the other aspects of doing a fuel cell really break away from the science in schools. Yeah, so Michael, you're off to University of Illinois, and hope you're off to Yale. Congrats to you both. We just have time for one more quick question. I'm curious, what sort of message might you have, you know, tips, suggestions for other students, including those who might be intimidated by science, math, and engineering? Um, I think that it's important to first find a really good mentor that you have a great relationship with. I have a great relationship with my mentor at NIST, and I think that it's just very important. And also, I think it's important to know that not everything you're going to do in terms of your project is going to work automatically. And I think it's important to know going into your project that you need to find alternative solutions to everything that you do and just be prepared for failure initially because you can't just go into your project thinking that everything's going to work out just fine initially. That sounds really wise. Um, Michael, what about you? Yeah, I think much along the same lines with um, science, engineering, the technology area in general, you always just have to keep trying. It's never going to be an easy um, path to follow, and no project you're doing is going to be easy. So um, we all had a lot of failure, I'm sure, and you have to just keep going with that and keep trying, and you'll push the bar and get further at some point. Thank you. We're so proud of you. Thank you so much, Hope and Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was Hope Weinstein, a senior at Fairview High in Boulder, and Michael Brady, a senior at Cherry Creek High School. For more info on the Intel Science and Engineering Fair, you can just search Intel ISEF. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. And still with us here in the studio is Joel Parker, who is usually on my side of the microphone as part of the How on Earth production team. But today he's put on his astronomer hat, and he's here to tell us about the Rosetta Space Mission, which is en route to rendezvous with a comet later this summer. Joel is the deputy lead investigator for ALICE, the ultraviolet spectrometer that's aboard the spacecraft. And as we heard earlier, he's also the featured presenter at Café Scientifique tomorrow night. So think of this conversation as a preview of what you might hear if you join him tomorrow at Brooklyn's down in Denver. Joel, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, Ted. Thanks. It's 
good to be here. <laughs> it feels <laughs> feels weird welcoming you to the show. That's right. So uh, let's start out. Now, Rosetta, is uh, it's headed towards a comet called 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Very good. <laughs> and uh, can you give us a brief description of the comet and what we know about it already? Sure. Uh, we call it CG for short, so we don't uh, have to deal with the name too much. But uh, um, Comet CG is a uh, short-period comet. It has an orbit that goes out to about the orbit of Jupiter. Uh, the comet itself, based on uh, ground-based observations, we, can, we can't see the nucleus itself, but um, we can't measure its size from the ground. But due to its light curve, we can estimate it's about four to five kilometers in diameter. Uh, so that's a, a medium-sized comet. And when you say it's a short-period comet, that means it, it orbits quickly? Uh, that's right. It, its orbit is about six and a half years as compared to uh, long-period comets or comets that come from so far away, we see them only for the first time. And those comets would be coming from way outside the solar system. This one just hangs out between not even as close as the Earth is to the sun and, and out to Jupiter. That's right. So its farthest distance from the sun is out around Jupiter. Its closest distance, it's you know an elliptical orbit, closest distance is a little bit further out than the uh, orbit of Earth. And so we, we can't actually see this, uh, this comet even when it, when it comes in, because comets usually they get bright when they're near the sun. That's right. So uh, when, it's, when it's far away, it's hard to see. Uh, astronomers, we have big glass on, on the ground, and we can see them far out before they really become active, before the big coma of gas and dust makes them more easily visible. So we, we can measure them and uh, detect them a little bit when they're far out. But of course, once they get in closer, closer than about three times the distance of Earth from the sun, uh, they start becoming more active and spewing off gas and dust and creating what we traditionally see as a comet. And so how far away is Rosetta right now? Uh, and, and how far away is the comet? Uh, I don't know exactly, well, how far away from the sun or the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, Rosetta and the comet are still um, on the order of about four times the Earth-Sun distance away from the sun. Uh, Rosetta is closing in on the comet. Um, probably on the order of a million kilometers or so. Uh, it'll take until uh, August for the spacecraft to catch up to the comet. And this is actually the, the first, not the first mission to, to, to go close to a comet. Other missions have done flybys and, and even shot something. We had like a deep impact mission <laughs> that shot a comet and that's, saw that's what, right. what got kicked up, uh, the dust and everything. But Rosetta is the first mission that's actually going to stay with the comet, right? It's it's going right. to tag along and go into orbit around that comet. As I like to call travels. those other missions one-night stands, and this is a long-term relationship. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've had several flybys of other comets, including Comet Halley, um, and we've learned a lot from those, but they're snapshots. And what Rosetta is going to give us is, rather than a snapshot, it's going to give us a movie, a close-up image of the evolution of a comet, how they turn on, where all the gas and dust comes from, uh, a really good measure of the chemical and physical properties of the comet that you can't do in the brief encounter of a flyby. So uh, Rosetta is going to greatly increase our knowledge about comets. So let's talk about your role in collecting all of that data. Uh, what part of the mission are you involved in? So as you said, uh, I'm involved with 
an instrument called ALICE. It doesn't stand for anything. It's just a pretty name. It's an ultraviolet spectrograph. So basically, just like uh, a prism breaks visible light into a rainbow, this spectrograph breaks ultraviolet light into an ultraviolet rainbow. And that rainbow has uh, contains a certain wavelengths that some atoms and molecules of interest, um, oxygen, carbon, uh, carbon monoxide, hydrogen, etc., um, have certain lines that we can measure. So that's why we're sending an ultraviolet spectrograph to a comet, is to measure those particular species. Uh, so those different types of gases and, and elements, you're, you're looking for water vapor or carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. These are like organic molecules. So is there a, a hint here of maybe learning how life might have got started on Earth or maybe the, the building blocks for life get spread around the solar system or through space? You can, you can always tie something into the search of, for life, you know, especially if you have anything that contains, you know, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen. Uh, comets certainly have a tie-in in that they do have organic molecules. They also are uh, water-bearing objects that occasionally slam into things like the Earth. So water on Earth, a lot of it has cometary origins. So there's definitely a tie-in there. And what else uh, do, do comets tell us about maybe the, the, the way the solar system formed? Uh, why do we need to know so much about a a little ball of rock and ice. <laughs> you, can, you can think of a comet as just a leftover bit of debris from the formation of the solar system about four and a half billion years ago. Uh, these were bits that never collected together to form things like planets, and they formed in different parts of the solar system. And uh, for various reasons in the early ages of the solar system got knocked out to these very distant areas that are or if they formed out there in these very deep freeze areas. So they've been kept in a freezer for four and a half billion years. So they have locked within them the chemical properties of the solar system as it formed four and a half billion years ago. So they, the name Rosetta is appropriate. It's allowing us to translate, to understand something, a dead language from that long ago. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Um, I'm afraid we're, we're just about out of time, but I'm sure our listeners are dying to know more, uh, and that's why they should come to see you at Cafe Sci tomorrow night. So uh, let's right. give those details again. Do you have them in front of you? Sure. I, I know them off the top of my <laughs> head. So the Cafe Scientifique uh, is going to be at Brooklyn's uh, near the Pepsi Center tomorrow night. Uh, the talk starts at 6.30. I'll talk for about 20, 25 minutes, and then it'll be followed by 45 minutes to an hour of questions and answers. Um, you can come early, get food. You can eat and drink while you're talking to me. It's very informal. I don't have any slides. It's like a discussion. So uh, come on by and bring any questions that you have about Rosetta or comets or what it's like to be on a deep space mission. All right. Well, I hope some listeners do come down and, and join you. Uh, th this is Joel Parker, uh, usually of How on Earth, and also an astronomer with the Southwest Research Institute. He's also deputy investigator on the International Rosetta Mission, and you can learn more about the mission at esa.int slash rosetta. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker, the Rosetta Guy. This week's show was produced and engineered by Ted Burnham. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from They Might Be Giants. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran.